Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus. It's the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try our best to understand what they're talking about. I'm Professor Matt Brown and with me is my perennial bridge over troubled waters, the Simon to my Garfunkel, Associate Professor Chris Kavanagh. Hi, Chris. Well, hello. I thought you were going to repeat yourself in your old age and do the same introduction that you've done before, but no, you didn't. You proved it. <laughs> I did the last minute. It, it was a curveball. So, congratulations, <laughs> Matt. You're not going senile just yet. This is the objective for every episode, just to throw you a curveball and see how you react. And uh, you don't have a comeback for that one, do you? I don't. I never get one of any of those. You know, you don't get the grovel to your muscle master. I don't get your 70s and 60s references. <laughs> so, uh, I. I I just assume that it's it's all complimentary and accurate. It's pretty complimentary in this case. You've never heard of Simon and Garfunkel. What's wrong I with know, you? Oh, okay, I know them. Yeah, they do that song, The Sound of Silence, right? That's them. Yeah, that's them. That's them. So, Matt, our favorite two intellectuals of the modern era, the Weinstein brothers, I believe they've been out in force. We know that Mr. Brett, has been out with Heller trying to convince everyone to kill themselves by taking ivermectin <laughs> instead of vaccines. That's his general thing at the minute. That's what he's generally up to. That's his kind of default mode. We were considering doing an emergency release episode to cover some of his anti-vaccine mm. stuff. But I think something has happened today. Um, so Brett Weinstein, of course, has been heavily promoting ivermectin as a silver bullet. The Miracle Cure, and a far better alternative to fix that old COVID than the vaccines. And he's been uh, relying heavily on some meta-analyses, at least one of which was done by what seems Tess like... Lawrence. These, Tess yes, Lawrence. Yes, Tess Lawrence, yeah. who is an activist, I would say. Um, I think her credentials are real, but she is a dubious figure promoting hydroxychloroquine and a various cocktail of drugs for... That's what I, uh, that's what I mean to say. Her associations, shall we say, are a bit mm. dubious. I don't think she's just a pure disinterested actor, shall we say. No. Um, so it's a bit of, of a fly in that ointment um, the last couple of days because one of the largest studies that supposedly found strong benefits for the use of ivermectin has been what seems to be totally discredited and retracted from the journal in question. So uh, I was interested to see how Brett would respond to this. And mm-hmm. <laughs> with scientific <laughs> rigor, Matt, he's a, you know, Brett isn't emotionally invested in these kind of things. He's just following the evidence. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure that he will respond in a very scientifically informed and critically minded way, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I'll just read that out. Those who argue that large-scale randomized control trials are the only reliable evidence in evidence-based medicine have misled you. Now you can see why. Large RCTs amplify systematic error in addition to signal, whereas meta-analyses amplifies signal and corrects for error. Now, There's so many things wrong with this, Chris, but probably the first thing I could say about this tweet is that it is impressive the way he's attempted to judo flip this finding because this particular large-scale study was the only 
one really, I think, that was at, and it was adding a great deal of weight to these meta-analyses that, that he was relying on. All, all the rest were very small ends and um, had many problems. Now it turns out that this one has massive problems, if not complete fraud going on. And he's judo flipped it into illustrating how he was right all along. It's amazing. That's shocking. I'm shocked that he would do that. That's so <laughs> out of character for Brett that it's it's stunning to me, Matt, that he would even say that. Um, yeah, that like, no, it isn't. This is completely characteristic of Brett. And of course, instead of like this attempt to flip it is so stupid as well, because like the whole point with meta-analysis is the quality of the data that you put into meta-analysis is what comes out of a meta-analysis. Yes, meta-analysis can correct to some extent for individual bias in studies if overall you have a smorgasbord of studies, including high-quality studies. You cannot correct for all the studies being low-quality and biased. If you do that, you simply get a signal which is a compilation of biased and low quality results. So yep. Brett saying that, well, it doesn't matter if individual studies are terrible. It does indeed, if that's the quality that is representative of the studies that are going in. And that's the criticism of the meta-analyses that Brett is relying on. Pretty much all of them say the studies are low quality. Even in their own conclusions, they indicate that we need higher quality studies. So, so yeah, of course he would do this, but it's undermining his claims, but he, he can't acknowledge that. It certainly does. But I'm, I'm a, By the way, I, I do have something funny to tell you related to this. So on the Joe Rogan Reddit subreddit, <laughs> there's a post up that says, Amazon reviews of horse ivermectin suggest Brett Weinstein's followers are self-toasting with apple-flavored ivermectin horse paste. <laughs> it's it's a, a kind of collage of these reviews for horse paste, which is saying things like, do not trust our crooked medical system. All viruses are parasites, and this kills them within 36 hours after a single dose. I'm not taking an experimental vaccine that is not FDA approved and so on. So it seems just generally that due to promotion of ivermectin, people are taking ivermectin infused paste for horses. Oh, so God. Wait, wait, I, I had a joke tweet, I think a while ago, which was like, I wonder if Brett told his audience to eat dog food. Like, would some of them do it? Like, would they? If he really made the case for it, could he convince people to eat dog food? <laughs> and I, I think that's indicates that maybe, <laughs> maybe he could. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because if it follows the same path as hydrochloroquine, whatever, which once it's been discredited, public sentiment flips pretty quickly and he's yeah. totally hung his hat on this and you know he's sticking to his guns obviously with that tweet that i ran out and i can see him sticking to his guns and writing it all the way to the bitter end it's hard to see an exit strategy for him here assuming of course that ivermectin um the evidence continues to stack up again i actually thought i was anticipating that he would start to hedge but he's not so like at least credit to him there that he's 
riding this right into the grind. <laughs> um, I think the reason for that, Chris, is related to what we we're talking about before, which is that the Achilles heel of many of these characters is their overconfidence. Like he's not pretending, he's not grifting in, in a conscious way. He is absolutely convinced of his rightness and he finds it inconceivable that he might be wrong about that. So I don't think it would occur to him to hedge and pull back because he's convinced himself. Yeah. yeah so, so this is the narcissism at play, I think. That's true. And speaking of narcissists, the other Weinstein is in a good mood, although he hasn't joined his brother on the ivermectin train. He actually released a tweet saying, thank you for asking, but I have no comment or no opinion on the ivermectin. So that's a... Uh, hanging out poor Brett to dry. Maybe he reads the writing on the wall there, but he is, however, feeling very vindicated today because the Rolling Stone have released an article with the headline, Was Jeffrey Epstein a Spy? And this is a report about him telling various people that he had connections to intelligence agencies and so on. It's it's not a great article. But of course, famously, Eric claimed that Jeffrey Epstein was a construct of the Israeli intelligence agency played by a series of actors, <laughs> or at least the man himself was not Jeffrey Epstein. That was a character created by the Israeli intelligence to entrap scientists. So Eric is taking this as vindication. An article has appeared that says something similar. So that's it. And he, he doesn't just say, well, look at this, the worm has turned. He, here's his, the tweet I want to read for this. I want academic freedom on this platform jack it takes too long for the normies and the press to get the truth your twitter safety just isn't good enough this account was taking huge risk to talk about epstein and intelligence don't ever think of throttling me again <laughs> oh that's the one i saw yeah that's that tweet has it all hasn't it that's that's don't dare throttle me and just imagine Jack Dorsey. I don't know. Does he get these notifications from Eric? But like, what? Wait, you know, are we- <laughs> Who are you again? What the- yeah. <laughs> That's self-importance. It's just amazing, isn't it? Like, uh. Eric thinks if his tweets don't get enough attention, the only explanation is that the head of Twitter is telling his safety team, like, we need to shut down Weinstein. He's he's got his finger in the pulse, man. Like hit the hit the Weinstein button. D D you know, shadow ban, shadow ban, do whatever you can. He's getting too close to the truth, man. Stop him, stop him. You again you joke, but I I do actually believe that's exactly what Eric's thinking. That's what he's imagining is going we, on. We've got to stop him before he unleashes wormhole technology and, and takes the whole damn system down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, dear. They, they, they never gift. fail to deliver, do they, Chris? No, the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Brett, for another entertaining moment in Weinsteinian history. Um, mm. But, so, you know, Matt, we've done a bunch of interviews recently. We have one more that's coming up soon with Evan Thompson that we've already recorded, the scholar of Buddhism, which is mm. an interesting chat. But today, though, we're on to a normal episode, a guru. Or is he? Or is he, Matt? This is well, uh, the second in the personal gurus sequence. The second and last. <laughs> it's, uh, um, we had Anthony DeMello, 
And yeah. this week, who do we have? We have Carl Sagan. My God. <sighs> My God, it's full of stars, Chris. It's full of stars. Um, look, I think he definitely is a guru because, you know, we've talked about this before. Our, our concept of gurus is encompassing. It doesn't necessarily imply that they're terrible people and a stain on our civilization. You know, he could be a good guru. He could be a bad guru. But I think it's clear that he is a guru. He was one of these characters that really invented the role of the public intellectual scientists, probably him and people like Einstein even. Obviously, Einstein was, was a fair bit more important scientifically, but they, they both occupied a similar sort of space in the public consciousness of, of that kind of scientist with a big, all-encompassing worldview with important messages to teach us. So, so basically, gonna- are you saying, Matt, that like, not to put words in your mouth, but basically they're like the previous generation version of you and me? Like we we are the the Einstein and Carl Sagan of the modern era. That's that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you've looked up to me as something of a Sagan-esque character, and I've been happy to provide that role modeling for you, Chris. I think it's helped you. I've often thought to myself that these conversations are very much like if Carl Sagan and and Einstein had met and recorded their thoughts. This is the kind of thing that they would have produced. No, they yeah, they would have. <laughs> yeah, they would have. <laughs> Probably yeah, more successfully. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if we've quite got the knack of the the natural mm. self promotional ooze that manifests from the IDW folk, but but mm. it, it was a good go. It was a good go. Yeah. So I, in I, any I, case, in any case, Chris, I I will say that I will say that Carl Sagan is definitely a guru, but it remains to be seen whether or not he is a good guru or a bad guru. Yeah, there's a big question there. Is he is he terrible or is he not? It's very hard, and people will have to wait and find out what our take is. But the um, it's uh, the suspense must be killing them. Chris, Chris, okay, what? I see. I I, I got what? the. I think you, I was genuine, Matt. That was I just, <laughs> the sledgehammer sarcasm. I perceived it, but oh, I also you, you caught I, that. I, I caught that. Yeah, but I also know. What a critical son of a bitch you are and how even someone who is, you know, generally quite good, you have the knack of finding inconsistencies, problems with them. Often they don't turn out to be quite as good as they might appear. So I'm looking at you, Rutger Bregman. Yeah, (laughs) Rutger Bregman. (laughs) Bregman. Well, yeah, to spoil that surprise, I will say I really like this and I can't help but feel that, in looking at Anthony DeMello and Carl Sagan, that it's given me an appreciation, even with Anthony DeMello's issues, which were there that we discussed, and maybe some of the things that we'll get to with Carl Sagan, it just feels like we're somewhat lacking figures like this in the current discourse. And of course, there's a bit of looking back with rose-tinted glasses, but... The, this talk that we'll get into, there's so much in it that's valuable. There's so much humility in his presentation that it's just so rare in the gurus mm. that we look at that it's it's hard not to think that there was a better class of gurus maybe just one generation ago. That's yeah. That's that's all. Yeah, and I think that's it's even more remarkable when you know you keep in mind how long ago this was so we're looking at 
a talk that he gave in 1992, I think. But of course, he came on the scene in the early 70s, I think. And that was a fair time ago. So he could have been pretty great for the time, but I wouldn't have been at all surprised to sort of look back and find that some of his takes didn't age too well and yeah. it might not look quite so great to contemporary eyes. But we, we will see whether that's the case, won't we? We will. And uh, so just in case people want to find it, it's Carl Sagan 1994 Lost Lecture, uh, uh, The Age of Exploration, which you can watch on YouTube. It's like an hour and a half long. And it's worth checking out. So, Matt, since this is your guru, I'll let you lead us. Where shall we go forth, Macduff? Let's start with a little bit of a statement by Carl about inspiration, I think. We today living in polluted, under-polluted skies and in cities with light pollution have mainly forgotten how gorgeous the night sky can be. It is not only an aesthetic experience, but it elicits unbidden feelings of reverence and awe. Secondly, people made up stories about the stars. They invented uh, Rorschach tests up there, follow the dots, constellations, look like a bear to you, Og. Yes, I guess it does. And... and And then then force their children children to memorize these absolutely arbitrary patterns. I don't see the bear's tail, Dad, shut up. Hmm. So just in case anybody doesn't know, like Carl Sagan was an astronomer, amongst many other things, cosmologist, astrophysicist, and popular science communicator. So this talk has themes related to astronomy and, and, and science and so on. And he was not just a science communicator, though, but legitimately a, a well-published, well-referenced scientist, heavily involved in promoting the search for extraterrestrial life, right? The SETI initiative that came. So all of that we probably should have said at the start, but that clip probably highlighted his interests in that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, Carl Sagan's best known for being a science popularizer, the Cosmos TV series and uh, book. He wrote a number of um, popular science books, but he was also a well-published astronomer and had a very respectable academic career before that. You know, he, he wasn't a Albert Einstein, of course, you know, no. but it was more like a Richard Dawkins who, who was a proper evolutionary biologist and so on, and then went into focusing on popular writings. He was, as he said, heavily involved in promoting SETI and also was part of scientific advisory panels advising on, for instance, the dangers of nuclear war and nuclear winter in particular. And basically did a whole bunch of things and was awarded a whole bunch of awards and medals and got a great deal of cultural recognition uh, during his lifetime and sadly died a little bit uh, prematurely in 1996. So his career, starting from the, the 70s until almost 2000, I spanned kind of my entire young life. And, and I became aware of him when I was a kid and saw things like Cosmos and eventually end up reading books like The Dragons of Eden and so on. And to be honest, I kind of forgot about him for many years, but I've just always had that sentimental attachment, but couldn't remember the details. So I sort of remembered him from a much younger self. And so I wasn't at all sure coming back to him now whether or not I'd still like him just as much. Yeah. And so that clip 
talking about looking at the stars and people identifying constellations and projecting stories onto them. It fits in with a general discussion he has about how looking at the past, the mistakes that we as a species made in reasoning about our world were entirely reasonable and in many respects are intuitive to the way that we still think and that we shouldn't look back at the people in history as that they are unsophisticated, uncivilized brutes and we are the their kind of genius offspring, but rather that we are them but for science and technology, right? Mm. Yeah. I, I think he is a guru because even though probably 90% of his material is pure science education he he certainly does weave that into his worldview how to understand ourselves how to understand humanity and what we should be doing and diverse topics like how we should be treating animals and nationalism and so on i just want to say for the audience that we'll of course be focusing on his takes which are kind of more connected to that big picture stuff because we're not going to cover his stuff about stars and nebulas and the Big Bang, because even though that stuff is awesome, there's nothing much for us to say about that. We're sort of looking at that 10%. Yeah, yeah. I will say, Matt, that we'll do the Garometer episode after where we look at like how he fits into our schema. But there are obvious elements where he does fit. Like you say, he has takes on a variety of topics, like not just spanning within his area of expertise. But I think that in many other ways, he doesn't fit in terms of a lot of the characteristics that we see we we would normally identify in the gurus that we look at but we'll we'll see that as we go on so i don't think we need to be defensive about covering him because he's an influential guy and if he scores low on our grammar that's all right we need variation matt we're scientists we need deviation to calibrate the instrument precisely so we need somebody we need somebody to throw eric weinstein into sharp relief exactly exactly <laughs> So let's continue and hear him outline one of these kind of big picture talking points that you mentioned. We humans have had civilization only for about 10,000 years. Our species is a few hundred thousand years old. Our genus, the genus Homo, is a few million years old and therefore for the vast bulk of our tenure on earth we were something other than sedentary and the word has such an aura of self-congratulation civilized what were we we were hunters and foragers By the way, I just want to say I enjoyed that disdainful, what are we, so self-congratulatory, civilized. That was good. I'd like that too. That stood out to me. And that fits with his theme too, because I think it's not insignificant that his first example when talking about humanity was not some European Enlightenment figure or something like that. He was talking about the amazing technological achievements in the broadest sense of hunter-gatherer tribes. It definitely speaks to his, his, when, when he talks about technology and science 
and even civilization, even though he's being a bit dismissive there, he's talking about it in a really all-encompassing way that, that encompasses everybody. And you can hear how impressed he is with the achievements of human beings to be able to survive and prosper in these natural environments without all of the, the whiz-bang technology that we've got today. Yeah, there's another clip, I think, which speaks to that and which I appreciated, not just because he praises anthropology in it, um, which which is always good, but more <laughs> because in doing so, he illustrates that he is not a rigid reductionist, you know, scientific chauvinist in a sense. Like, it doesn't come across in the same way as Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins do sometimes, that they think the humanities are all just dancing around, writing nonsense and fairy tales for idiots. He respects, at least anthropologists, and uh, it comes across quite nicely in this clip. Our knowledge of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is due to a few courageous and far-seeing anthropologists who went and lived with the few remaining hunter-gatherer groups before they were finally and utterly destroyed by civilization. The anthropologist from whom I learned the most about hunter-gatherers is uh, actually here with us, Richard Lee of the University of Toronto. Mm. I don't think he's exactly correct that all hunter-gatherers were completely decimated, but it is true to say that the, in the majority of cases, their lifestyles have been hugely affected by the encroachment of surrounding society. So, yeah, after introducing that there are valuable insights to be gained from anthropologists looking at hunter-gatherer ways of life, he then talks about tools that hunter-gatherer societies were building. The first thing that I think is very important is that they are highly technological. The technology is uh, wood and stone and domestication of fire technology, but it's absolutely technology, and there are experts and other people who are not quite as good at the technology. Um, but not only are they technological for fun, they are technological because their lives depend upon it. Hmm. Okay. And the archaeological and anthropological record is clear that we were technologists all the way back to the beginning. So the idea that uh, science and technology is something new, something uh, unusual, something we can even find books that say not really very human is completely backwards. Technology is, if anything, the most characteristically human activity, although, as I'll mention later, it is not exclusively a human activity. Yeah, so I thought it was really telling that he chose to lead his lecture not with stuff about stars and Galileo or what have you, but rather with this discussion of hunter-gatherer groups. And one time I, that I was feeling exactly the same thing is when I did a seven-day hike um, in a place called Carnarvon Gorge in the outback of Australia, about 600 kilometres west of Rockhampton in Queensland. 
no, it's it's amazing country. It's this it's this gorge. It's it's very rugged, harsh country, and it's it's just hundreds of kilometers from everywhere. In some places, it looks like the the surface of the moon when when you're actually driving to this place, even though it does get quite lush inside the gorge. And there are lots of artifacts of Aboriginal activity there, and we know that it was a place that Indigenous groups often visited and travelled to and, and met there, and so on. Now. We just spent seven days hiking <laughs> and we had these high-tech tents and we had plastic bottles to keep our water and dehydrated food and all sorts of types of assistance to us. But even so, it was hard, you know, going 100 kilometres for us soft, civilised folks. And it really brings home to you what a challenge it is for a human being to survive out there and without any of those assistances and luxuries and safeguards and so on that that we had we, we were just play acting it right the the indigenous people who actually lived there and traveled there did it and they did it with what sagan would rightly call technology and science you had to know an awful lot you had to have an incredible degree of skill to be able to locate water, locate food, locate shelter, be able to create tools and things that you needed to survive. You can't just buy it at the hiking shop. So I'm probably not explaining that well, but I just think Carl Sagan's view there where he does see a continuity between the kinds of technologies and the kinds of understanding of the physical world that um, inverted commas primitive (laughs) hunter-gatherer groups had to have it's quite right to draw that continuity to civilized again using air quotes civilizations later on and also as he as he mentions with non-human species as well yeah he talks a bit later about somebody trying to learn a tool technique for fishing for termites using a method that chimpanzees learn and how even after i think it's nine months to a year they're, they're very bad at it compared to chimpanzees, but also they need to apprentice at it. It's similar to when you see stone tools and they're presented in medium whatnot, but oh, you just stick a sharp thing onto the edge of a stick and there you have a spear. But the reality is like to make lithic weapons or lithic hunting tools took hours and hours of chipping effort. And there's anthropologists and various archaeologists I think have tried to reconstruct the processes involved and they're they're massively complicated and time-consuming efforts so it's a really good start for this kind of lecture to highlight the continuity of technological achievement in humanity as a whole and not just focus on the purely modern era or like you say, Enlightenment Europeans, as that's the beginning of when technological development began. So that's quite a nice corrective, I feel, from a lot of the narratives that we tend to hear now, where there is presented as essentially a bleak and horrific past until the modern era begins. And at the same time, he doesn't seem to fall so much into the trap of Rutger Bregman of romanticizing the people in the past because later he talks about superstitions and and so on. But it's more that he simply is giving credit where it's due. Even what looks to us unsophisticated technology is the product of a lot of effort and a lot of human intelligence. So that's a good message. 
yeah, it's a great message. And I guess it feels particularly refreshing today where we seem to be falling into these two camps, one of which is skeptical of reductionism and positivism, the humanities and the left side of progressive politics. And then you have the science boosters who, as you said, Richard Dawkins, who question the value of literature <laughs> and anthropologists in particular <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's it's like Carl Sagan just see, I don't know whether it's just a sign of the times or if it's him in particular but it it just seems refreshing to not be a part of that dichotomy yeah and I will also say this isn't like a defense of anthropologists there's plenty of terrible anthropologists out there and there's plenty of waffle in the anthropology discipline but it is just this willingness to acknowledge insight from other quarters, which is refreshing. So one of the themes I think throughout the lecture uh, explicitly is the need for humility. And this is a, I mean, it's something that is catnip, I think, to me and you, which is possibly why we enjoyed this discussion so much, because the core message is don't be so proud of yourself and of what we've achieved. As individuals or kind of groups. As humanity, that's maybe a different story. Yeah, and but- actually, I think it gets to that because, you know, there's a certain element of it about erasing the distinctions between races and ethnicities and nationalities, which might not be so in vogue today amongst some certain progressive spheres. But before we get to that, let's begin with him talking about humans and their perception of themselves as uniquely important. Now, having said that, I want to turn to the important and uh, rueful fact that every human culture has considered itself at the center of the universe. What's this about? Well, I think it's very straightforward. Back then in hunter and forager times, many modes of modern nocturnal entertainment were unavailable. Some were available, but many were not. (laughs) Television was not available. So... Nocturnal entertainment, Matt, something you would know all about. But I, I'm just, I think that's a good illustration of the point that we just raised, that he isn't romanticizing, right? He's highlighting an issue for all societies that we know about in pre-modern uh, history as well, like expanding into modernity, that they considered themselves the center of the world and potentially the universe. And he wants to argue against that, right? So like I say, not a naive view about the divine state of pre-modern humans. Uh, we're all like kind of wallowing in an undeserved sense of superiority. Is it the Inuit had a word for themselves? They described themselves as the real people. Not that there was anything especially parochial about them. As you said, everybody at all times has been like this, but it's just indicative that pretty much any culture has had a concept of themselves as the centre and as strangers and and far-off places are considered at, at the outside. I mean, we have a like the name for China is the Middle Kingdom and in the kanji is middle and country, so the suggesting quite clearly where the location of... China is, but that, like you said, that's what every culture is thinking. And he does a segment talking about how every culture tends to put themselves at the center of the map. 
And to people not from that culture, it seems weird. Like, why are those people at the center when we are clearly the ones at the center? And it's a nice point to make. And it leads on to this point about the way that we view nature. Not only did every culture draw this conclusion, but I think it's clear that our ancestors took enormous personal satisfaction in it. Because think about it, we are at the center of the universe. The center of the universe is surely an important place. Not only that, what other animals, what plants make use of the apparent motion of the stars? Only us. Therefore, the stars have been put there for our benefit. Yeah, so I think here he's referring a little bit to what's a common theme in a lot of religious teachings, which is that people were created by God and everything else was created by God too, but we're special and everything else from from the stars to the moon, the sun and all the animals and plants have been put there for our benefit. Now, Sagan's obviously someone who loves looking at the stars and uh, thinks that's a wonderful activity, but he, as we'll get into, feels we should absolutely not think that we have any privileged perspective on that. Yeah, and so the next clip is talking about how applying naive reasoning can lead us astray, which I I feel is especially relevant given the current pandemic and the various responses to that. But this in particular bleeds into flat earthism, which I'm sure Sagan would be disappointed, but not surprised to find is still around today. Now, the most superficial examination of the sky shows the stars are rising in the east. Some of them pass directly overhead and some of them pass on small circles close to the horizon. But they all rise in the east, they all set in the west. And then, in the daytime, they do something else. They somehow go around the bottom of the earth that none of us has ever seen. Uh, It's flat as a board, of course. And then the next morning, they come up again in the east. Now, there's, there's absolutely no doubt from this fact that the stars, the planets, the sun, and the moon all go around us, and we're obviously not moving, that we are at the center of the universe. It's an observed fact. Anybody who denies that is, there's something wrong with them. One of the things that's always nice about Carl Sagan is, I guess, the tone. So he's very interested, of course, in the history of science and definitely thinks of the discovery of the heliocentric kind of model and and so on as, as a really perfect example of scientific progress. But he never ridicules or is dismissive of people back at the time when they were wrong about that. And here he's emphasizing, of course, that it's it's a perfectly intuitive and easy or logical mistake to make to think that the world is flat and that everything you see in the sky does go around us because that's what it looks like. It actually takes a fair bit of effort, a fair bit of careful observation and a fair bit of careful thinking to dismiss that explanation. So he doesn't go for what could be an easy kind of narrative there, which was 
blaming, oh, it was the, the repressive religious authorities that are to blame or it was these stupid people that hadn't learnt about science yet. I think his message here is very, it's very charitable and it's, it's appreciating that it's, it's a long, hard journey to develop a scientific understanding of the world. Yeah, and I appreciate that, like you say, that charity that he extends back and and kind of makes clear that us, including him, in a different setting would be the kind of people that were thinking like that. So that's the message is that don't look back on the previous eras as these kind of primitive minded people, but recognize that when people are misled by what's around them in the world, it's not always obvious, right? And I think in some way, this speaks to the counterintuitive nature of a lot of scientific findings and why it's understandable that people are reticent to get vaccinated, right? Because they feel there's something about an essence being violated, right? Or, or, or that it's not natural and why people are hesitant about GMO food. There's, there's a lot of things where there's reasoning which fits well with our evolved psychology, but which is ill-equipped to deal with the scientific realities. And we shouldn't ignore that, basically, when we're looking at, you know, why people do what they do. It's not that people have to be misled. It's that it's, in many ways, intuitive to mislead ourselves. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it fits with his theme of humility here, which is not to be contemptuous. And this is probably a lesson... (laughs) I should probably try to absorb, which is not to be contemptuous of being wrong about things and to remember that it's really just luck that we find ourselves at a particular time and place where we have even the chance to inform ourselves a little bit better than our ancestors did because they were doing the best they could with what they had available. And that's as true of a hunter-gatherer with their own conception of the world. It's as true of them as it is of a religious scholar in in Europe who was absolutely certain about Earth being the centre of the universe. Yeah, and I will add to that, Matt, just to rescue my own vindictive nature, that while I agree we should reserve our vitriol for the previous generations to some extent, given the different circumstances, I think it's perfectly legitimate to take to task the people in the modern era who have had scientific education, who do have access to information and the ability to spend some days, do you know, do proper research on topics, but yet constantly default to intuition or conspiratorial thinking, like certain brothers that we may. No, right? I think in some sense that when people are claiming the mantle of scientific thinking and approach and essentially doing the opposite, you're, as Carl Sagan went on to do in in a lot of his work, calling out pseudoscience and superstition, that it's reasonable to do that, but you can still do it with charity, right? You You can understand the pitfalls that people have, but... It doesn't mean you shouldn't be critical of what people are doing. You can just do it with empathy that, you know, 
it's understandable that people would find those kind of things intuitive. Yeah, for sure. So let's get back, Matt, to how humans like us are chauvinist monsters. And we really need to be put in our place about our, our relative unimportance to the galaxy. And they're saying, we're at the center, we're important, we're special, everything goes around us. There's a resonance here, a resonance between that and our emotional hopes and needs. The idea that the universe is made for us, not because of any particular merit of ours, but just because we're here, or just because we're human. To me, this seems to resonate with the same psychic wellsprings responsible for the view that our nation is special and the center of the universe, which, by the way, is the literal meaning of the Middle Kingdom um, for centuries applied by the Chinese to China. Uh, and even those who haven't made it that explicit, nationalists of all stripes. You can see it, by the way, in the maps, how often each nation has itself at the center of the map. Now, it's probably important to remember that this talk is given in 1992, which was a fair while before the current climate where it's extremely in vogue to be talking about Eurocentrism and colonialism and so on. And he's speaking to an audience of Americans, of course, at that time in the full swing of relishing their role as a global superpower and at the very centre of the world. And he's, I guess, reminding his audience in quite a gentle way that that kind of thinking is inherently broken. Yeah, I think he becomes even more explicit about how far he extends that notion in in this other clip, which follows on from that point that he was just making. So, And the same psychic wellsprings that say that our gender or our ethnic group or our particular melanin content in the skin or a particular language or headdress or clothing styles or convention of pulling out the handkerchief when we sneeze or anything is important and central and all those alternative ways of being human are somehow less central, less important, uh, less worthy than we are. We have a weakness and Scientists are uh, creatures of the culture in which they swim, in which they have grown up, and so we also are vulnerable to this siren song, which we can call chauvinism, or geocentrism, or anthropocentrism. Yeah. Right on, Carl. <laughs> like, I, I, want, I really like that because there's a, a bunch of stuff that he combines which are, I think, quite intuitively combined but maybe not so commonly that you hear together in the current climate. Like, So, first of all, towards the end of the clip, he highlights the social nature of science and that scientists are also subject to biases and prejudices and that we should be aware that they swim in the culture that they are 
working in. And that's a very, I think, by folks in the culture war, be seen as a very postmodern, neo-Marxist point of view. But he's not saying that to undermine science. He's saying it, in fact, to argue that we, we need to be more objective or strive to be more objective by recognizing that fact. And in the same way, you could read the first part as a fairly strong criticism of identity politics, right? Arguing that ethnicity, gender, nationality are not these super important indicators that we should attach such meaning to. We shouldn't seek to elevate or denigrate people above any others and gives the example of sneezing as just a, it's just a convention. So why would we be proud of that? And I see a lot of appeal to that message, right? Like I get that there's a, a criticism of that, th- that there's a naivety, right? That we can abandon those things given the societies that are set up the way they are. But I don't get from his talk that he's unaware of like structures of discrimination or history. He's just making an appeal that we should develop a pan-human sense of connection and respect and that this is really the only future that we can strive for in the long term that makes sense. And like, I I don't see a naivety in that. I just see something that's worth aiming for, even if it's not immediately achievable. Mm. Yeah, the thing that makes Carl Sagan a little bit remarkable in this day and age is that he is, as you say, putting forward a super progressive and even somewhat what would be called today woke point of view. But he bases it on this very scientific, materialistic, positivist, reductionist even mm-hmm. worldview. Yeah. And that's what's so weird because today those things have been put in opposition. And I guess that's where he, you know, he really rings my bell, I suppose, because I, this is, this is just my personal opinion, which I want to distinguish from analysis. But, you know, I, I feel like he's right. I feel that if you do have a good, accurate view of the world and you take to heart the sort of stuff that he's talking about, which is that humans are not special. We weren't put here by God. We don't live in the Middle Kingdom or in a country like the United States with a manifest destiny. And no one group of people has any special privileges over another. Like a, a lot of good social and political views flow from this very humble scientific worldview that he's laying out. So, yeah, what can I yeah. say? I like it. I like it. Yeah, he's a guru promoting humility and including in himself and the the scientific community. And so let's just hear him one more time chastise us for our chauvinism. Uh, so the, my masochistic, masochistic streak in action. Um, tell me, Carl, what we are doing wrong. No, we're not at the center. No, we're not important. And uh, to my mind... Many of the key findings of science, much of the modern scientific perspective, evolves from debates with that character. That point, echoing the the message that you just highlighted, he also criticizes the, the religious message that we see ourselves as stewards of the environment. And he counters no, right? Even though he is a 
a guy that was very pro environment um he he says this we've been put here by the creator to take care of things stewardship is the very engaging word that is often used uh who knows what would happen to the environment without us so we uh, we have an obligation to make sure everything goes as god would have wished it i mean we're probably overstating this point but what really works for me is that message of not taking ourselves too seriously and it's just it puts him in contrast to all of the other gurus basically who who just take themselves extraordinarily seriously and when they want to flatter their audience they they tell their audience that you are part of this special community that is going to save the world i remember when i tweeted something that annoyed james lindsay i think i'd criticized him because he was attacking some male model for wearing a dress or something in a photo shoot and i <laughs> I dunked mm. on him a bit. And his response to me, which was in his mind, the worst put down he could imagine, which was this, that you're irrelevant. That was his, his put down to me. And it didn't work because I completely agree <laughs> with that. And I find that somewhat comforting even, you know. I, I, th I think a normal, healthy person has the worldview of Carl Sagan and doesn't have the worldview of w one of our gurus in which they are at the center, in which the entire world depends on their amazing insights and that we're on the brink of some revelations if, if only people listen to them more. I, I see in general, in just so many ways, that humility and recognizing limitations are an important thing and something which is like undervalued in the current ecosystem that we live in, especially on social media where everybody is a content creator, everybody is putting forward themselves as, as somebody with something special. And I think the, the message that, you know, even if you have specific skills, even if you're proud of what you've achieved and all, that's fine. But you have to have like a degree of perspective about it. And like to give an example, Matt, I think, you know, people that need to tell you how many books they've read or how many lectures they've listened to or that kind of thing, these are not usually the people that it's evident that that's true, right? Like Carl Sagan doesn't say during this talk, I've read 200 books on astronomy and I have 600 papers published, right? But Jordan Peterson, when he's talking about global warming, will say, now I read 200 books on global warming and yet he will get basic science wrong and he'll make claims about how many hundreds of hours he's devoted on topics and, and then display that he hasn't read the Communist Manifesto or something like that, despite focusing for hours about the problems with Marx. So, I mean, I'm basically evangelizing for humility and self-deprecation. I'm, I'm putting my culture as the one that, that, that the world should emulate. I don't, I don't think that's true. Like, Northern Ireland is fucked, but, you know, I, I'm just making a joke. But I just fundamentally endorse his message. That's what I'm saying, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think these are good puristics for spotting good gurus and bad gurus because you'll never see Carl Sagan claiming to have personally revolutionized our understanding of astrology or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, like, and, and, and he, and, yeah, and yeah, that's well, <laughs> well, that's he, um, 
you know, he is charismatic. Yeah, he he's he's mellifluous. He's got he's got the gift of the gab, and he had he had a kind of celebrity which your modern day gurus would dream Back of, from. right? Yeah. yeah, and yet he didn't do that. He Albert Einstein's another person who could have easily slipped into self-grandiosity, I think, right, and said, oh, you know, you should listen to me with my opinions about everything because, look, general relativity, hello. Are you <laughs> sure he didn't? I don't know enough about Einstein to... I'm not, okay, I'm not 100%. Look, let's cover Albert Einstein one of these days. My gut feeling is he doesn't, but, okay, let's put aside Albert Einstein. I'll stick to Carl Sagan and... You know, he doesn't do that, whereas these pretend gurus really do. They spend so much time attempting to convince you in a hundred different ways of their amazing insights. Whereas when I have consumed Carl Sagan's content, when you watch Cosmos, for instance, or you listen to any of his lectures, he's not doing like little references to his own insight for this or his own study on that or how he's got this fresh new take about black holes or whatever. What he's doing is he's doing public education of science. He's not taking the yeah. credit for himself. He's acting as the handmaiden or the, the servant to a, a community which is much, much bigger than he is. At least that's the feeling I get from listening to him. Yeah, I agree. And so, Matt, we'll get off the humility point, but there's one final clip which you prepared, which I thought was very nice. And it, it's kind of talking about the the golden barriers that we've erected between humans and other species and how we shouldn't be doing that. There are people who find it very upsetting, who still long to be at the center. And... One area where you can see the emotions not hidden but uh, written out in clear is in special creation. The notion that we are the particular objects of the devotion of the creator of the universe, that we're different from the other animals, never mind plants, uh, not just in degree, but in kind. And uh, you know the list. No one else has altruism, compassion. No other animal loves their young. Nobody else can foresee the future consequences of present actions. Nobody else has art or music. Nobody else can use tools. Nobody else can make tools. And this list, it goes on and on. He is making this point, you know, 20 plus years ago, that many of these have been shown either to be not true, for example, make tool use and manufacturing, but or to be a different in... Uh, degree rather than kind, like Franz de Waal's work uh, arguing about m morality and the development of fairness perception in primates and so on. So this is not to say there aren't elements within human society which are exceptional in how they've developed, but I think the message that as exceptional as we are in amongst animals, we are fundamentally off the same kind of thing and it's a quirk of evolutionary history 
that we ended up the dominant species on the planet. And a quote of cultural history too, that we ended up being so dominant, I suppose. Yeah, in both directions, right? The genetic and the cultural dual inheritance model, if you will. I know that you can actually, there are people who will push back and kind of highlight the level of cumulative culture, for example, that humans have is something which marks us out and, and so on. And and you can, like the thing is, you can't focus in that perspective, but I don't think that Sagan's message is that you should never do that. It's just that you should do it with a sense of humility about not viewing humans as this completely separate entity from the natural world that reigns over mm. it supreme. But no, we are we are just a product of it. I, I see it as him challenging the idea that there's a special essence. So in like in the same way that he emphasizes how in terms of our astronomical location, we're not at the center of any universe. In the same way as before he was emphasizing that you shouldn't think that your group whether you're Inuit or Chinese or American or European, has some special essence that marks you out as separate and distinctive. The same is true for the human species and other animals. We don't have a special essence. And I think that's what you are saying and him. All right. So we're, we're humbled ourselves enough. Now we've, we've <laughs> evangelized the gospel of self-deprecation with St. Paul. <laughs> So what's next to look at with Mr. Sagan? What next, what next uh, is a good question. Let's hear about Sagan's idea of self-worth and the role that luck plays in our lives, hey? That sounds riveting. Okay, here we go. Dr. Wing asked, what further demotions, humiliations do I foresee for us? Um... You see, the idea that our sense of self-worth comes not from anything that we've done, not from anything worthy, but by an accident of birth is where the crux of the humiliation is, in my opinion. I would say those of us worried about being demoted. Those of us who wish for us to be important should do something important. We should make a, an easily understandable, achievable, and inspiring goal for the human species and then set out and do it. That would give us the confidence that we sorely lack by being dependent on our self-esteem being based on nothing we do. We want to have self-esteem? Let's make a planet in which nobody is starving. Let's make a planet in which men and women have equal access to power. Let us make a planet in which no ethnic group has it over another ethnic group. Let's have a planet in which science and engineering is used for the benefit of everybody on the planet and my personal idiosyncrasy, let's have a world in which we go to other worlds. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. 
I, I don't know that the applause was necessary from you, Matt. We we, we could have just <laughs> done provided. But um, the the thing is that you know, like I have to say, Matt, he's just such a woke idiot. He's you know, <laughs> he's obviously being indoctrinated by critical race theory. He's doing heavy duty virtue signaling there, isn't he? It's yeah, just, the liberal it's agenda. It's oh, who's he virtue signaling to? What what a cock! <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, you know, right on though. Hey, can you think of anything wrong with any of that, or, or is it too platitudinous? You know, I'm trying to. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to show some of our trademark cynicism and meanness. No, I liked it. You know, the, it, it, if you want to throw a bone to the Petersonites in our <laughs> audience, he did kind of hint towards the. You know you do stuff stop complaining and moaning and if you want to be proud of something you've got to actually make efforts out in the world to to change things but i think it doesn't exactly work because he's talking about like humanity (laughs) as a a whole and what we should be striving for so individual responsibility is not entirely the thing that he wants to emphasize though right it's the kind of societies and the values that we should instill and like yes just to be clear, it's sometimes useful for me to be clear. That was sarcasm. I don't think he's a woke <laughs> idiot. I, I think that is an illustration that those kind of sentiments are not exclusive to the woke social justice set, right? Like the viewpoints here. It sounds quite modern in a lot of mm. respects, what he's saying. And I don't have any objection to it because, you know, he's talking about a world with greater gender equality, less racism. So, it, I mean, who, who can complain with that? I was thinking of Star Trek, particularly The Next Generation, <laughs> when he was doing that, because that's that's the kind of Star Trek, hyper-rational, but very principled, very modern sort of philosophy, which I'm all for. I think it's great. And the other thing I like about it, it it's very optimistic. It's, it's forward-looking. I like the way it's both hectoring and optimistic <laughs> he gets to <laughs> say like don't be so proud of yourself for just being born a human you losers <laughs> you, yeah. you gotta you gotta contribute something to the species before yeah. you get to be proud and yeah, yeah i think that's a, a a sentiment that is a good reminder and probably fits in with the notion that it's all right to be proud of your culture and so on but you shouldn't rest on your laurels because of just the circumstances of your birth you didn't choose Mm. those Mm. i like the way this kind of thinking is big picture it's almost like a question a child would ask which is okay this species humanity should we be proud of ourselves or not we did some cool stuff you could argue but from the point of view of pretty much any other species on the planet like agent Smith says in the Matrix, we're we're a disease. You know, we we, we screw everything up. The Matrix, Matt. It's the Matrix. Yeah, the Matrix is not the Matrix. The Matrix. It's that's a very egotistical mispronunciation of you. But uh, sorry, sorry. So, so, yeah, as a species, we we've done a lot of clever things, but most of those clever things have been done for total self-interest. So I like the. Star Trek Next Generation vibes, which is you have a civilizational purpose which goes beyond just feathering your own nest and making your own personal life 
more luxurious and comfortable. That you you could potentially have other goals. You can imagine a species having other goals, and you know you could disagree or, or or argue about what those goals should be. Someone like Sagan would say that exploration, exploring the universe, and plumbing the limits of science is is a great and worthy goal. But yeah, like you said, he adds to that other pretty important goals. Like technologically, it's completely within the power of the human species to eliminate hunger and most of the diseases that are wrecking the world. But we don't. But we could. <laughs> so, you know, I, I like that maybe kind we of should. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should. Maybe yeah. we should. Yeah. So, to summarize it, Mark, in a pithy way, are you saying, we live in a society? I feel that's evergreen insight. And speaking of evergreen <laughs> insight, I have a little surprise for you, Matt, because we agreed that we'll look at this specific interview, but in my way, I couldn't resist looking at some other Sagan content. And I came across what was billed as his last interview. I don't know if it was or not, but it was certainly towards the end of his life with Charlie Rose. And it had some nice parts in it that I thought highlighted some important things. So there's some amount of discussion in it about God and agnosticism and what is the appropriate boundaries of skepticism. And I thought it's quite interesting because in some respects, Sagan had a fairly accommodating worldview when it came to, you know, he, he was famous for publishing books, debunking pseudoscience and and rank religion. That's a terrible phrase, but like that. Superstition? Superstitions. Yes, that, 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 will, that will work better. Um, but so he, there were these two clips where he's talking about standards of evidence and how to deal um, with evidence. And I thought they were good um, illustrations of his kind of model of skepticism. So here's the first one. What is faith? It is belief in the absence of evidence. Now, I don't propose to tell anybody what to believe, but for me, believing when there's no compelling evidence is a mistake. The idea is to withhold belief until there is compelling evidence. And if the universe does not comply with our predispositions, okay, then we have the wrenching obligation to accommodate to the way the universe really you is. You I like that, Matt, because it's just an antidote to the worldview promoted by like Russell Brand and the conspirituality-minded gurus that the universe revolves around us and our mentality and desires and the message there is no uh, we have a duty to accommodate ourselves to what we discover about the nature of the universe regardless of how insignificant it might make us seem and the contradiction with the other guru types and how they frame uh, the kind of level of importance to attach to your own internal narratives was pretty striking to me yeah like a lot of the topics we talk about, you could describe what's wrong with a lot of them in terms of unwarranted certainty. This unwarranted yeah. certainty that ivermectin is a miracle cure. This unwarranted certainty that the election was stolen. His advice there, which is that we should try to be a little bit better at withholding judgment when things really are uncertain, is good. And I also like the grouping together of religion and 
other forms of non-evidence-based beliefs, I mean, I feel like they've got a lot in common. Like they, they all involve a totalizing worldview. They all involve post hoc rationalization for what is essentially a faith-based belief. And they are all just very bad at doing critical thinking and evidence-based analysis. So, you know, he's saying, don't do that. And I say, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a point in this interview with Charlie Rose where he raises a counterpoint to Sagan about like his advocacy for agnosticism when it comes to the existence of aliens and his stance about religion and whether there's a contradiction there. And I, I think, again, it highlights some really nice principles that he wants to advocate for. You convinced me a long time ago that it was arrogant for me or for anyone else to believe that there wasn't some life outside of our... To exclude the possibility. To exclude the possibility was, right. was, was, to, was an arrogance of intellect that we should not I still assume. You couldn't prove it. You didn't know it was there. But the arrogance for you. Right. We don't know if it's there. We don't know if it's not there. Let's look. And if you take that, mm-hmm. why can't you say there's a lot we don't know? There's I, I a say lot it. of power Here, there that we there's don't know. There's a lot we don't know. You know, I, I, it's what I believe about. But that a lot doesn't of mean stuff. that every every fraudulent claim has to be accepted. We we demand the most rigorous standards of evidence, especially on what's important to us. Yeah, I, I like I I love that because you've got the admission and no hesitation to admit there's a lot we don't know. And yes, lots of things could turn out to be true. But whenever the interviewer, Charlie Rose, is kind of saying, well, you know, isn't it just arrogance then to assume any stance to argue that types of gods don't exist or that kind of thing? And his his counter response that, no, because we need the identity be willing to call out fraudulent claims or claims that lack evidence. And for things that matter, we should care about the the standards of evidence that exist. It's just, it, it felt like there's a not necessarily a contradiction there, but it, it, it is something that could easily be weaponized by people to mm. simply insert doubt for things that don't mm. deserve doubt to be inserted. Yeah. So a lot of the... Uh, conspiratorial talk you will see really weaponizes the skepticism, doesn't it? So they will use that argument, which is, well, you cannot prove that this isn't possibly true. Mm-hmm. So we should consider it seriously. And that's different from what Sagan is advising. But as you say, it can very easily be used as a rhetorical trick. You need to have an appropriate degree of open-mindedness and an appropriate degree of skepticism. But it's so easy to go too far and be so open-minded that your brain falls out and be so skeptical that you basically invent conspiratorial reasons to doubt everything and end up knowing nothing. And I heard on a, a very centristy podcast, The Fifth Column, and their most recent episode, where they had a great guest who was talking about a kind of epistemic crisis that we're in at the moment and talking about the kinds of propaganda that 
Donald Trump has ushered in and techniques that are also being used by Russian bot farms, which is just to sow so much doubt and so much confusion and so many possible alternatives and narratives that might possibly be true or so on. And their goal is not to convince people of any particular thing. Their goal is to make people give up on the idea that you can know the truth about anything at all. Yeah, so I think um, Carl Sagan's advice there is particularly important today. Yeah, it's kind of the distinction between Scott Adams' skepticism and like actual, real, genuine skepticism or Brett Weinstein skepticism. I'll get that pronunciation one day. And the fifth column, I listened to that episode as well. I enjoy the fifth column, though. I, I, you know, I think they lean more towards the libertarian spectrum mm-hmm. of, of things but they had jonathan roach or roach on i don't know how that's, to pronounce that's it, the guy mm. it was so cathartic because he he basically like when they were saying ah yeah but you know isn't it just you know can we really say that things on the liberal media are better than on right he was just like yeah <laughs> we can because <laughs> you know and he i'd see him with like russian disinformation and stuff it was just it was enjoyable because he, he knew his stuff and very strongly argued that even though there's plenty to criticize in left-wing media, it, it does not mean that you can ignore what Trump has been doing or the yeah. partisanship on the right. So yeah, that just a good episode if you want good. to hear pushback against that kind of views. Um, so Matt, we normally try to find a part where we have something positive to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, I don't think that's fair in this case because it's almost like we have said nothing but glowing remarks about Carl. I do want to highlight one contradiction, one possible contradiction that I find in the Q&A segment where he was asked a question about animal testing and the ethics involved therein and it's not so much his response about that which is understandable um as you'll hear he basically endorsed that we should use it sparingly but it it can be necessary that it shouldn't be used frivolously which seems a reasonable position to take but um just follow through matt till the end till and see if you can spot the potential contradiction here but uh we'd also not argue that no animal experiments should be done and I think if I had to, uh, if I had to explain, somehow it was my job to do so, to uh, some people whose child was dying because a medical procedure was unavailable, which might very well have been available if animal experimentation had been performed, I don't know how I, I would do that justification. Now you might say to me that uh, I'm putting humans higher than other animals. And where do I come off doing that, especially at the end of an evening where I've been decrying chauvinisms? This, to me, is like the argument that is sometimes said. Dave Morrison mentioned it in his talk today. Um, why should we take any steps to save ourselves if an asteroid is going to hit the Earth, since asteroids have hit the Earth in the past? And, uh, you know, others have gone, so we might be here, so we'll go, so, you know, whatever it is, the raccoons will have their chance, or the ants, or the sulfur oxidation state altering submarine worms will inherit the earth. Um, At this point, I have no difficulty in, uh, since I happen to be, it's an accident of birth, a human being, to 
justify human beings trying to survive under sometimes trying circumstances. That's my judgment. I'm sure if, uh, you know, I were a lizard up here, I would be talking about, uh, yes, let's sacrifice the humans so we can get better medicine for the lizards. Uh, after all, I'm a lizard. Um, I'm sorry, I can't help it. So, Chris, where do you stand on this? Do you support putting lipstick on monkeys? You look like the kind of guy that would want to do that. Yeah, well, I support that, but not for medical testing purposes, just pure <laughs> self-enjoyment and the, the thrill of the cheers. Um, well, how I choose to spend my free time is not the subject. No, of- nobody else's business. That's- <laughs> That's, you know, I keep the Japan for very specific reasons, Matt, very specific reasons. And... Um, the, so yeah the, like I just think there is a certain contradiction right when you've just give a talk which is extolling the importance of uh, humility and to avoid anthropos- anthropocentric views of the world to then say well but you know fundamentally I'm a human so you know mm. sacrificing other animals for our good is you know what can you expect from me and mm-hmm. I, I, it's true. Like there's no, I, there's no condemnation there because I'm a human too, despite rumors to the contrary. <laughs> and I, I also would willingly sacrifice animals to sustain myself on that. So I'm not claiming to be better than Carl, but I'm just saying I didn't spend an hour extolling the limitations of anthropocentric worldviews. So. Yeah. Don't worry, Chris. No one listening to this thinks you're better than Carl. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I, you, you didn't you didn't keep this bit in the clip, but he started the, off with saying that he felt extraordinarily conflicted on that issue, and as you say, he acknowledges the contradiction there. And I think it's, don't call out my rhetorical techniques, but I, I didn't <laughs> edit the clip. It, you, you know, it just. <laughs> It was just for time, just for time. Yeah, just for time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, look, you're right. It is a contradiction. But, you know, he's right too in that uh, I I can't think of anyone who could reconcile that perfectly. Can you think of a non-contradictory, like assuming you don't like torturing monkeys for sport, can you think of a principled way to approach that stuff that is totally self-consistent except for the kind of compromisey milk toasty you know avoid gratuitous kind of things avoid it whenever possible but accepting that in some cases going to be basically prioritizing people you could make arguments i suppose based around consciousness right degrees of consciousness or self-awareness and so on you know um people do do. i will say that the history of animal experimentation i mean i think he completely sign on to this but it's full of some horrors for what various intelligent creatures endured for little scientific purpose or benefit i'm thinking of the experiments of harry harlow which although used to you know sort of undo some notions in psychology that were harmful about the way to deal with infants also involved putting young social primates into pits of despair so-called black boxes and removing all interaction and sunlight for them for months to see what they did like and mm-hmm. you know that's a level that's like in, i i find those as disturbing when i read about them as i do you know human experimentation um mm-hmm. but they yeah. i get that they're not on the same like moral level because we're humans but it's just 
it's in the same ballpark is what you're saying. And I agree. And But, you know, Carl Sagan would definitely classify all that stuff in terms of gratuitous um, yeah. suffering for so, marginal benefit. In fact, I'd put anything under the social sciences and psychology as marginal benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, so I think that like, you're never on really tricky grounds if your argument is, at the very least, we need a lot better standards and a lot more concern about the humaneness with which animals are treated and to avoid undue suffering. So, But, they, but like I say, I think it's a way of dodging the issue because the, the Carl Sagan would not, say the exact same thing. Yeah, he'd agree with you 100%. So looking at it more broadly, human beings now consume like 60% of the ecological energy budget of the earth. You know, we've displaced huge number of species and squeezing every other species on earth into a smaller and smaller box, right? Because we're just taking more of everything for ourselves. And I personally think we've got to reverse that and take it in the other direction. And I think with smart use of technology, we can probably do that without suffering huge decreases in standard of living ourselves if we're smart about it. I also personally think we should be very conscious of just the sheer number of people on the planet as well, you know, how, how many people it can sustain at any one time. So I'm fully in favor of decreasing the box that our species consumes. Uh oh, um, Matt, is this the great, your great reset? You're coming out as a, like, you you want to yeah. increase the population by a couple of billion. Uh, yeah. This is yeah. all your globalist plot. That's why you don't like talking about the great reset. Yeah. You're on board with it. Yeah. Um, fluoride in the water to sterilize people. That's what I'm after. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but the reason I mentioned that, right, is just to say that even though I'm in favor of shrinking it a great deal, which is probably a reasonably radical position, I wouldn't be in favor of shrinking it to, say, prehistoric levels, right? Where humans were just just another primate wandering around hunting and gathering where now we really did consume just a sliver. I'd probably go for the like a compromise kind of position, right? Where we maybe take 30 or 40% of it maybe and leave the rest for all of the other species, which isn't really fair on them. If you take the super strict philosophical stance that we do not prioritize humanity, then my position is inconsistent too, even though it is fairly radical in favor of the animals. It, I feel like we're just fighting a position that almost no one except from like extreme mad Peter people will take though. Yeah. Our position that the environment is important and animals should be preserved. Like these are not the main tortured. stream. But yeah, should not be tortured. Like there, there's a couple of people on the fringe saying, you know, no, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, for Neil Varnish and the insoles of shoes, we, we should sacrifice gorillas and, and Citations, but they're in a minority for a good reason. So we're we're not we're we're safe, Matt. We're we're not stepping yeah. on any third rails here. But to be super clear, I guess all I'm doing is just defending his wishy-washiness on it because I, I don't see how, I don't see how you can't be. You just have to be wishy-washy sometimes. Just defend them all the time. Defend, defend, defend. You're a hero. No, I get it. No, 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 no. Look, I sympathise with you because I really, really wanted to find something that I could you know, show what a great dispassionate critical thinker I am and even be willing to criticize uh, my hero who's saying all the things that press my buttons. I really wanted to virtue signal my dispassionateness, but I couldn't, I couldn't find it. So let's turn to a response he gave about a question about consciousness. Now, consciousness has various meanings. 
if it means an awareness of the external world and modifying your behavior to uh, take account of the external world, then I think microbes are conscious. If you mean deep thoughts, like uh, Bishop Barclay's contention that nothing exists except what's in his mind, I'm with the microbes myself. <laughs> um, you see, how do you know that I think any thoughts? Only because I happen to be communicating to you. You can't easily tell that I have philosophical thoughts by looking at me drinking this cup of water, right? So imagine that I was mute, that I could not communicate by speech or writing or anything else. Then how would you know if I had such thoughts? The evidence for uh, not just the so-called higher apes, but running through the apes and the monkeys, to me, is very persuasive that they have thoughts. Not only deep philosophical thoughts, but useful practical thoughts, like lying, like deceit, like planning to fool others, thinking about it far in advance. Mm. Got to say, I really liked uh, his his ping on Bishop Barclay, his his supposedly super deep human thinking about consciousness and God or whatever is is just nonsensical to <laughs> to Sagan's view. So you could be like super smart and be and, and use that intelligence to invent complete nonsense, can't you? Yes, we're familiar with this from the, <laughs> the gurus that we cover. But I don't know who Bishop Barclay is, but I'll grant that his title alone does not inspire confidence in me. Okay, but as an anthropologist, did you like what he was saying there about consciousness? Yeah. And, and yeah. I, like the, <laughs> the hesitation in that, yeah, was simply that, yeah, I'm basically fully on board with that, and I share the intuitions that he has about the relative dispersal of consciousness across non-human species, and that it's better to think of consciousness on the spectrum than as a golden barrier, right? But I am aware, though, because of spending some time with the comparative psychology research literature, that there are surprising limitations in our next of kin species speaking, um, you know, with chimpanzees and gorillas and so on. There's, there's, there's so much which looks extremely similar. And in that sense, it's often hard for us not to anthropomorphize and we might be justified in doing so, but there's various clever experiments which indicate that certain abilities which seem like they should be straightforward are really not, that they, they come naturally to us. And a really nice counterintuitive illustration, which th this, this doesn't exactly speak to that, but I just think it's such a nice finding, is that when you give chimpanzees a puzzle box and you demonstrate for them to go through these steps to get a reward from the box and they'll watch you and they'll copy the steps and the same thing goes for children all right you show them the steps and you're tapping and you're doing various things then in the next stage you show the box and now it's a see-through box 
where you can see the insides. And you realize that some of the steps are pointless, right? They're just like tapping into an empty space. They don't do anything to extract the treat. Now, chimpanzees will drop the useless steps and they'll just go for the instrumental goal, right? They want the sweet, so they realize, oh, we don't need to do that. Whereas the human kids, even though when they can see that there is no mechanical purpose for the steps, they'll what's called over imitate, right? And I, like, I always find that interesting because it's a, you know, the common phrase monkey see monkey do, but actually humans are the ones who are much better at imitating in a non-instrumental fashion. And uh, so humans copy the behavior better, but the chimpanzees take a more like goal-oriented approach to uh, yeah. it. It would almost be the opposite of what people predicted, right? Because humans are more intelligent. Um, so, but, but what about a chimpanzee baby? <laughs> back there with your Bregman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, look. If, if, if you gave me that box, I'd go straight for the treat. I'm sure I wouldn't. No, oh, you're wrong. So this is the other <laughs> beautiful thing about those experiments. They thought that. They thought, oh, but this is just kids. You know, they're, they're following, uh, like, the cues of adults. Maybe there's a mechanism they don't understand or so on. No. When you get kids to demonstrate it, the kids, they over-imitate it. When you get adults to demonstrate it, the adults, they over-imitate it. Us humans are over-imitators par excellence. And, mm. you know, that's part of what makes us cultural animals. Mm. In that sense, it comes like a limitation, but it's not. And that, that's just like, you know, mm. it's a kind of funny counterintuitive example. But I think if you take it in another way, it is an element of exceptionalism amongst mm. humans. And Carl Sagan's worldview downplays them. I think that's a a good thing to do, but I I do think there are certain aspects that essentially do make us an exceptional species. Yeah. Well, just before we move on, an interesting correspondence there with the over-imitation is that well-known study of they would put pigeons in those Skinner boxes. You've, you've yeah. referred, yeah. And they didn't do anything horrible to them, thank goodness. They, they, when they pecked on a lever, sometimes they would, they would get a treat when they pecked the lever and they'd very quickly learn to pick the lever. But they had other interesting conditions where there was like a lever or something, sure, but the treats would be delivered on a totally random schedule. And what would happen is that the pigeons would develop these little rituals and behavioral quirks, perhaps bending their neck or sort of taking a step or something like that when the treat happened to come out. So they were overlearning the mm. association between their behavior and the reward. And uh, people do exactly the same thing. And yeah, you know, correlation it, is not causation. Exactly, and you know, it's it's one of the reasons that people develop delusional thinking about gambling, uh, gambling fallacies, because gambling is is a real life thing. If you're playing a poker machine or something like that, it's delivering rewards on a totally random schedule. But p people who have gambling problems often also have these little delusions about what will make the machine pay off, very similar to how the pigeons do. So anyway, it just struck me that's an interesting, similar case of overlearning. I apologize, Matt. I'm going to digress us further into your area of expertise because just one question, though, you meant you said you know gambling delivers random rewards, but like aren't the payoffs pretty much structured in such a fashion that they're like you know timed interval rewards of a certain amount in order to maximize 
engagement, you know, the, the unarmed bayonets are carefully manipulated to provide just the amount of wins at the kind of times to keep people hooked, right? So it's not random. It is random. So um, what you, what, don't, don't contradict me, Chris. So, let, let me clarify for you. So, yes, it's what, what you're thinking of in your, in your naive yet charming Amateur. way. Is, <laughs> what you're thinking of is, is yes, those one-armed bandits are tuned in a whole bunch of different ways to increase their addictive potential. But th those things are primarily related to the visual displays, right? So the sounds and the symbols that are shown. For instance, they yeah. will do things like show near misses, so where the yeah, symbols yeah. almost line up, and they, they, they will show those at a rate higher than is real, leading people to overestimate their chance of winning in the future. Another thing they do is losses disguised as wins. So they will pay off. So, you, you know, you spin, mm. it costs you a dollar. It'll pay off and you'll win. 40 cents and what will happen is all of the lights and the sounds will play the same sounds and stuff that are associated with the real win of say 10 bucks where you've actually got made a net win those same plays also play when you really lose so they do do those tricks right but what they don't do almost universally is that they don't do any kind of timing or there it, it's a memoryless process right so every time you press that button it, it is a perfect random event so there is no sort of structuring of the intervals or anything it's actually illegal it's almost in like most places. you're an expert in this area <laughs> i'm just a little man dancing through the forest with my intuitive uh jordan peterson insights it's just good though that you can sit at the feet of true expertise <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to um, consciousness. You know, we can't measure consciousness per se, but we can measure a lot of the neurological and physiological things that are associated with perceiving pain, for instance. We can d determine that way that there's it, there is at least very similar things going on in the brains of animals and, and humans when similar sort of phenomena are occurring to us mentally so it, it is it's becoming a smaller and smaller leap just on a biological level to say that those same things are going on with animals what do you think about this i mean i'm no expert on this one but to the degree that people are special a lot of it is associated with language right when we think we are thinking using the same areas of the brain and, and we're using linguistic constructs not just to communicate with one another but also just to think so we know that there are parts of the brain in humans that are specialized for language i'm pretty sympathetic to suggestions that very recent human evolution the stuff that catapulted us towards this global technological civilization is actually associated with evolution stumbling upon an abstract general purpose language rather than tool use and purely technical prowess what do you think <laughs> You've, you've just tuned well, out. You're thinking about something no, completely like different, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I, I, I have not. I, I, I was paying very clear attention there. The, I was just thinking deeply about the model that you were describing. And there's a lot of people that have mapped linguistic competence to elements of consciousness. But I think there's, there's kind of like an, a never-ending debate about the chicken and egg scenario there, right? Like the ability to express complicated ideas develops before or after 
the ability to do complex vocalizations and grammar, right? When it comes to the ability to communicate and to have an array of vocalizations, there's a lot of species that have that. There are even species that seem to have dialects, but the complex grammar or that kind of thing just doesn't exist, right? There's been some claims it does and and some discussion about birdsong and how that uh, can incorporate a kind of grammar, but grammar in the way that appears amongst humans seems like a unique aspect. And to be honest, the whole area is just so complex. There's like tons of theoretical models. And I, I dug into it a bit when I was doing my master's and I came away from it thinking, like it's a super interesting topic, but I just, I've got no idea which perspective is right on it. Like I'm kind of convinced by each paper I read, yeah. you know, yeah. arguing. Yeah. And yeah. Stephen Pinker actually was on a really good paper I thought about this a long time ago. So it just reminds me that, you know, when people are shitting on them about culture war stuff, like it's research stuff sometimes is pretty good. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Oh, look, uh, Chris, no, I'm totally the same. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> but um, like yeah, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not claiming you do. So like the my gazing into the sun look is just like trying to work out what I actually think about this. And the answer is like, I don't have a fucking clue. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't either, but look, just on a purely gut level, I guess I'm sympathetic to just very broad brushstrokes here, right? That our cousins among the primates probably have a great deal of overlap with us in terms of like phenomenological consciousness, right? Yeah. But to the extent that we are different, it's largely due to culture, which is really based on complex language anyway and language so that's just my gut feeling if i had to gun to my head force me to have an opinion there it is yeah you didn't you well, didn't but i gave it to you anyway <laughs> yeah yeah well they, you know it's cosmic man people are getting insights from anthropology psychology that's what they come for matt um now <laughs> to round things off i think we can offer some closing thoughts after this because there's a clip which is quite famous a little bit long but i think worth hearing at least in part which is a variation of his pale blue dot speech where he basically is talking about an image where the satellite took a photo of earth turned back on its way out of the solar system and, and took a photo of earth and earth appears as a moat of dust on a pale blue beam of light right and and he has some poetic reflections about it. And I've heard this segment in other formats and it, it never fails to strike me as like something profound and worth listening to. So it's worth people searching out the whole pale blue dot clip if you haven't heard it, but here's a little blast of that. So there it is. I mean, take a look. It's a pale blue dot. That's us. That's home. That's where we are. On it, everybody you love, everybody you know, everybody you've ever heard of, lived out their days there. The aggregate of all our joy and suffering 
thousands of confident ideologies, religions, economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every revered teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every uncorrupt politician too, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there. The earth is a very small stage in a great cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors, presidents and prime ministers, party leaders, so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of the corner of a dot. Yes. Uh, famous speech, justifiably so, very inspiring and profound. Um, a couple of things, Chris. One is the thing that really hits home for me with that pale blue dot image, like it, it, it's obviously gives us a sense of the precariousness of the biosphere and the great dark, right? But that's even more striking when you remember that the entire biosphere is basically an eggshell around what is basically a ball of molten lava. And if you go from as deep as microbes can exist in the earth to the very top of the stratosphere, it's like an eggshell. So it's not only a dot, it's, it's a, <laughs> everything that he's talking about is this eggshell around that dot. We have molten lava on one side and radiation-infused space on the other. So, yeah, it should give you a pause. The, the content of that speech, uh, rightly themed for the profundity of it, and also, as you said, highlighting how delicate the existence that we find ourselves, the situation of the earth. And there, there's a nice part earlier in the talk where he kind of, he's criticizing the anthrop, uh, what is it called? Anthropic principle? Yeah, right. The Goldilocks zone kind of thing, saying the universe was created in such a way that humans were able to exist. And as he argued, you could equally argue that the universe was created in such a way that rocks were able to exist, right? The lithic principle. And I think that there's room to incorporate both views that the place that we live on and the time that we find ourselves here is something special and we live in a delicate ecosystem and we are just one dot in a massive universe of stars that we will will be dead long before anybody knows anything about so it's humbling and also profoundly depressing <laughs> and, uh, and uh, like i i'm quite content to offer like my overall thoughts on sagan here which is just to highlight that he doesn't engage i think in most of the things negative guru techniques that we highlight here but he, he is, in many respects, something of a guru to people or a figure of admiration. He has opinions on a variety of different topics. He speaks in a poetic, metaphorical way. 
and his tone of voice is like melodious. So he has charisma is what I'm trying to say. But what I think this episode does is highlight that one, we agree with Carl Sagan. (laughs) And to the extent that we can therefore be trusted to have a objective view, it's possible for people to occupy the role of gurus and to also be promoting messages which are good and offering worldviews which are not fundamentally narcissistic and self-promotional or whatever the case may be. Like, I just think to the extent that Carl Sagan is a guru, he's a good guru in my book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend Aaron described him as the Bob Ross of gurus. And I think that's pretty accurate. Um, Yeah. So like you said, he's definitely a guru in the sense that he's like a meaning maker. He's weaving narratives in a poetic way. As you say, he's mellifluous, he's charismatic. A lot of his talk is almost like poetry, even though he does take a lot of diversions into the sort of substrate of scientific fact, including useful and appropriate anthropological studies and so on. So Part of what he does is, in the same way that Jordan Peterson does, builds a map of meaning and what's important and what matters and how we should think about ourselves. He he sort of sketches that out in a poetic way, resting on the substrate of a very scientific worldview. But here's the thing. I mean, so you can be against that in principle, but I think it's impossible to avoid. A lot of people talk about it these days about how religion's on the wane. So there are these new religions, including being woke or whatever, or because people have an innate need for meaning and narratives. Now, whether or not the specific examples given are true, I think that's fundamentally true on some level. You know, the scientific stuff um, goes a long way, but it doesn't tell you what you should do. It doesn't tell you what you should care about and what's important. So he's a guru in the sense that he's sketching out one possible narrative on top of that scientific substrate. And he does it well. That's why we like him. Unlike Jordan Peterson, when he gets into the the scientific examples, they're appropriate. And the inferences he draws from them are correct inferences. And they support his argument in a very logical way. But, you know, in the end, he's sketching poetry that I like. And uh, to the extent that I understand any of this stuff, it feels like the the substrate is building on he's building on it in a sound way to get to those conclusions so yeah thumbs up from me he's a great guy shame he's dead yeah the, uh, i wonder if he would be in the queue on if he was alive now i, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to so. that i don't want to that but <laughs> he, he isn't. i i i recommend his book demon haunted world is still worth checking out and yeah just you know these past two weeks have just reminded me of a time when we had a better class of gurus. I'm going to be a, a guru, a classic guruologist. I, I, I want to go yeah. back to the, the the real gurus before these online gurus came, you know, sauntered in. But, uh, yeah, um, the, the gurus were better when I was a kid. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, we had real gurus, Matt. They're real gurus. <laughs> they, went, they went into the jungle and killed people. Um, so <laughs> I, I like... I, I think this is a good time to announce that after our jaunt into the personal guru sphere and, and fiddling around with that, that we have decided to leap back into the, the culture war trenches and the mucky world of online 
psychologically damaged individuals. We know you love it. We we know that's what yeah. you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the content yeah. you come here for. We're gonna go slamming next week <laughs> with one Gad Sad. Gad Sad. He's been requested. We were thinking about Zizek or Jimmy Dore, and we'll get there. But we're gonna do Gad Sad, and we're probably gonna do a twofer. Gad Sad and somebody terrible that he's interviewed. Maybe Gad Sad <laughs> and Jeffrey Miller. Gad Sad and Dave Rubin. We'll, we'll work it out, but Mr. Sad, your time has come. <laughs> he's he's going to be delighted, I'm sure. He'll he'll probably um, find us on Twitter. He, he'll love the attention. Yeah, possibly. Well, so there just simply wouldn't be enough to do with him on his own. He's just not substantial enough. So we, we really need to do an episode with someone else there. And I think we should make that clear. <laughs> the episode that he didn't deserve an episode dedicated solely to him. But yes, Gadsad, you're you're coming up. I, I've got a feeling he's gonna be like Scott Adams, but let's see. Maybe maybe I'll be wrong. And Well, let's see. I mean, because I don't know much about him. All I've seen is a few you know, clips of, you know, a few minutes long. They haven't been good. What I have seen has not been good. I will say that. I've heard him interviewed by Sam Harris. And yeah, let's, <laughs> let's see. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong. And speaking of people that are wrong, let's talk about a couple of reviews <laughs> that we've received. You know, Matt, I like to get the negative to the positive side of the sphere. And I requested that people left us reviews and we got a bunch of them. Most of them are positive because we're just, you know, fundamentally good. But mm. I, we did <laughs> pick up a couple of negative ones that I also enjoyed. So let me just read one of them, which is titled Nitpicking as Podcasting. And this is by PG783. The format of this podcast is so annoying. It is set up like a debate but where one side always gets the last word. These two dudes play a short, out-of-context clip of whatever guru is on their docket, then proceed to nitpick and belittle whatever point was made, then move on to the next point. Rinse and repeat. It is incredible how many ideas come up lacking when set before the penetrating intellect of these guys. In a normal debate, a contested point could be expanded or defended, but in the world of this podcast, any and all assertions are quickly ridiculed and dispatched. It's like playing tennis with no one on the other side of the net. And guess what? These guys always win. They act even-handed, but just beneath the surface is an attitude of profound snottiness. The whole endeavor is a bit sinister, actually. <laughs> now, now, Matt, I, you that's know. Harsh. <laughs> that's harsh. That's, compre- that's, that's com- comprehensively harsh, yeah. What I think would be fair is to rebut this in a manner that this guy would love where he's completely unable to respond (laughs) and just endorses his point. I can read out his review in a snotty accent and it already reduces the legitimacy of his points by 50%. But uh, like, look, no, he's got got a reasonable point about uh, that. It's a bit unfair that the, the people don't get the chance to 
respond. But what the fuck do you want? Do you want us to call them up, play the clip, and request that they give us their feedback? Like, well, how do you answer this, Mr. Taleb? He's not going to respond. And also, <laughs> the whole point is that, like, we are looking critically at their content. Yes, you could do it too if you want. Just pause this podcast and, you know, make your own comments <laughs> and release it. You, you, you do it. Just... Just do what you are, but the, the whole format of the podcast is set up as critical commentary, analyzing like people's things. So like that's the format. That's the format. Tennis, tennis provided that. These people talk for like four hours unmolested, <laughs> just waffling on about their ideas. And they, they rarely get any pushback for it. So Pardon me for expressing that critical <laughs> opinion into your microphone. Oh, I, I'll send them personal emails and beg them to respond before I dare utter criticism. Is that okay? <laughs> PG7, E3, are you happy now? What's that? I can't hear your response. I'm, I'm sorry. PG7183, I just want to invite you onto the podcast to criticize us because we, we love that kind of thing. We embrace it. Chris is going to love talking to you and rebutting all of your points. It'll be fun. Yeah. Send us an email. Um, reach out. Reach out. Tell your people to talk to our people. We'll, we'll set this Send up. Send us an audio clip and we'll take it apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, thank you for that. Uh, I did ask for reviews and they were provided, so that was nice. But here is a positive review to to wash away the PG-783 bile. This one is, has a bit of negging and uh, it's a positive review but it has a bit of negging. I enjoyed it. It, it doesn't have the degree of criticism that's going to elicit your very defensive and uh, sensitive <coughs> response. Defensive, Matt. That was just, that's just joking. It's just joshing around with people. Just, that's the, yeah. you know, I could do that for all the clips. Is that the level that people want? They're like, no. So calm down, PG7, <laughs> if we just relax. No, it's just a podcast. This one is from Colonel Kurtz. Don't know if he's a real colonel or not, but um, the title is Excellent Listen, so it's already off to a better start. And then mm. it continues. Despite their oversimplification of Stoic philosophy, misrepresentation of Sam Harris, <laughs> and the constant digs at their English superiors, Chris and Matt are thoughtful, funny, and intelligent guys playfully picking apart today's public intellectuals. You won't agree with all of it, and maybe they tend too much towards cynical and negative views, but it's kept light by their effortless chemistry and sharp wit. It's not quite yet as good as very bad wizards, but I've got fear <laughs> that they might one day get there. Keep up the good work. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's well-tempered. That's just the right Yeah, it's very good. And, you know, of course, it's written by an Englishman. You can get the... You can tell by the passive aggressive and the, and, and the damning by fate praise. Very English. Yeah, yeah, backhanded compliments. That's fine. But, you know, that just had to balance out old, old PG's comment there. So... So that, but that was fun. And I agree. One day we will be better than very bad wizards. Not yet. Not yet. But we're, we're getting our voice. So you just watch out. Um, and <laughs> so yeah, that's our reviews. Thank you both for, for sending them in and all the other people who did, because there's all our funny ones, which I'll get to next week. I know we've ran long, but there is one other piece of feedback, which isn't a review that I wanted to mention. We received via the Patreon messaging, I actually think it was. So the, the, I won't go into quoting it in depth, but in essence, we got a message from somebody who was a Brett Weinstein and I think Eric Weinstein ex-fan. 
so to speak. And they basically made the point. They appreciated the podcast. The critiques helped them, you know, kind of see the problems in the narratives that the brothers were spinning and that they enjoy the format of the show and, and everything. It was all very positive. But they just mentioned that it was kind of hard for them to deal with initially when they were listening to our criticisms and there's points where we're laughing or or reacting in, in a credulous fashion to something the Weinsteins had said. And the guy was pointing out that, you know, after you've invested a lot of time with these guys, that you can feel a little stupid that you couldn't see what people are pointing out and laughing about as like transparently obvious. And I, I've got things to say about that, but what do you think about that feedback? Yeah, I think that's that's good feedback because... Yeah, you know, we do have a bit of fun with it. And when you do all that analyzing stuff that we do and then gather together the evidence, if you like, and put it all together, it all seems incredibly obvious. So it's worth emphasizing. I don't think it's incredibly obvious. A lot of that stuff, many of those characters, I listened to extremely casually. And my gut feeling at the time was it's fine. It didn't really strike me as obviously bad. And it wasn't until we did those deep dives and really stopped and thought about it that it became clear. So I could see how someone would get that impression. And uh, sorry, but it's more fun to <laughs> laugh and mock it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep doing it. But I, uh, yeah, it's mm. no, I because I, like the guy made the point as well that we we often do disclaim that we're not targeting the mockery at the followers because like the people do tend to be good at what they do. And that's true. It's not just a disclaimer. I think I, I have a lot of sympathy for people. You know, the people don't have time to, to go through the literature and ivermectin or maybe don't have the, the relevant expertise to do that. And like, and why should they, right? Like that's not something that you can expect everybody to be capable of doing. And they, they might have just genuine interest in science. And these are the guys that they picked up. So I would emphasize the same point you did that it's we make it look effortless because <laughs> we, but, but, but it, it's actually you know the thing is this podcast takes time right we have to go through the content we have to highlight the clips and we have to dig the things out and like you say when you put it all together it can be straightforward to see but when you listen to Jordan Peterson or Eric Weinstein or any of the people and it just washes over you. It can often be very compelling and you can feel like, yeah, you know, the, the points that they're making are valid and sometimes they are, but the way that people listen to content isn't, you know, it's kind yeah. of, they don't listen yeah. like this. They don't break, stop things and say, okay, so what was step one, two, three of the argument there? We do that because we're doing something weird. <laughs> yeah, we're doing something very weird and not at all natural. Like I must've seen so many TEDx lectures that at the time I thought, wow, yeah, that's that's really what. And then I looked into it a bit later on and realized that it really wasn't very good at all. But it sounded good because they're a good lecturer. You know, they, they gave a good talk. They sounded very convincing. It's absolutely no reflection on yourself to find bullshit convincing because they work hard at bullshitting. I'm, I'm not talking about TEDx people. Some some TEDx lectures are fine, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, when they are bullshitting, like you said, Chris, you can't tell 
unless you just happen to have a real depth of expertise in the specific things they're talking about and the specific examples they're giving, or you're willing to, as you say, pause it and then go and do all of this background research. And but why would you do that? That's not that's no way to live your life, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, I know, I know. <laughs> so yeah, so like I, I just wanted to flag it up because I think it's important to say that it's impossible for me not to be sarcastic and cynical and stuff. They're non-negotiable parts of my personality, but mm, I I still will keep in mind and and try to highlight that. The mockery is not intended to people that are duped. Like that's, there are people who I think deserve blame for that because they should know better, but there's lots of people who don't, and you don't know people's circumstances or what else they're dealing with. So, so yeah, that's, that's all. I just wanted to like spend some time on that because it was a nice message and I think it had an important point. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So we don't go for gazillion hours. Let's get to our Patreon shout-outs and sign off for the, the day. Yes. Um, so, Matt, first of all, Joseph Whalen, who is a conspiracy hypothesizer. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Thank you, Joseph. And next we have Nick Brower and Nick Angiono, two Nicks, dual Nicks. Mm. Mm-hmm. Both coincidence, Matt, that they are both. No, they aren't. <laughs> one's a conspiracy hypothesizer and one's a revolutionary genius. I'll, uh. I'll, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna upgrade them and and let play them both the revolutionary thinker one and and. You just have to guess which one is the conspiracy <laughs> hypothesizer and which is the revolutionary thinker. Which one, Matt? Which one will it be? Which one? Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Okay. And I've got another revolutionary genius i'm just i probably already messed up those two names but i'm definitely gonna mess the pronunciation on this one so i apologize it's mifona basi ikpe who is a revolutionary genius and someone i'm deeply sorry for my mispronunciation so thank you very much you're good at saying nick but not so good at other names that's right nick i got that one right yeah Mm, (laughs) the western chauvinist that i am Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Mm. The last one for this, Matt, uh, last one for this week is a galaxy brain guru called Ralph Kink. Ralph Kink. Thanks, Ralph. Ralph Kink. Yeah. Nice name, nice name. Quite tangy. You're, yeah, tangy. I'm just saying tangy. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It's a perfectly good That's name. Right. Agreed, agreed. Galaxy Brian that he is. Thank yes. you, Ralph. Thank you. You're sitting on one of the great scientific stories that I've ever heard, and you're so polite. And hey, wait a minute. Am I an expert? I kind of am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
don't trust people at all. Maybe we'll get Mr. some updates to these with Gad Sad next week. Yeah, they could. Uh, yeah, I feel like Gad Sad could be fertile ground for those. But thank you, Mr. Kink. That was good. Um, yes. So, Matt, where can people find us in this worldwide interconnected web? In this crazy mixed up world. Um, well, I'm at um, 31 Everglade Street. Um, no, no, that's not true. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> um, so we are at Guru's Pod on Twitter. Mm-hmm. We have Reddit, which is decoding De- decoding the Guru subreddit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't remember our email address or anything else. Yeah, can, Guru's can Pod. At, oh no, wait. Guru's Pod is our Twitter. And decodingthegurus at gmail.com is our uh, yep. like email account thing. And then you are Arthur C. Dent. I am Arthur C. Dent online. Yep, my semi-anonymous account. And I'm C underscore Kavanagh with a K and no U's. That's where we are. And uh, the Reddit is very active, isn't it, Chris? Like it's, uh, I was just, I'm just oh, amazed. Yeah. At, and yeah, and like, even though when I participate on the subreddit, it feels like nobody's up voting me or replying to my comments which not, please like, everyone I'll please please <laughs> please pay attention to me on the reddit because it's uh <laughs> my, my, my ego just can't handle it but i i do browse through the reddit even though i, I don't comment much because i know that will just be ignored but uh yeah like a lot of the discussions like people ask questions about some pretty technical stuff and then they get really good answers from like people who actually know stuff so yeah it just seems like a cut above your stuff i mean i know this is kind of the kind of follower praising thing but when i look at reddit usually it's like full of shit but ours is actually a better subreddit than most subreddits and that's just a credit to both of us i think well definitely and now it's cursed matt the night that you've said that it will become a seething cesspool mm. of hate and white supremacy so and people will play this back to show mm. that we endorse that so so good job, mm-hmm. Matt. You've, you've landed us in it with Sorry. your your parasocial uh, manipulations. <laughs> they've they've just mm-hmm. created troubles for us. But but yeah, the subreddit. Yeah, I've jinxed it. Is good for the time being. Go if you want to. For the time being, at, at this present moment, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we're saying. In July 2021, we yeah. said it's okay at the way, but we didn't look today, so we don't know yeah. what threads they posted. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah. We, we we're not admitting any kind of legal liability if you get involved with the subreddit and you get abused on gender, race, or identity characteristics. That's not on us. Just that's my that's my so, and up vote is, is post, please. Please my post. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing for the final moment of self-indulgence, Matt, I appeared on Stefan Kestin's podcast, The Strenuous Life. I lead a strenuous life. I talked about strenuous life activity. No, I didn't. I, I talked about gurus and our gurometer um, for two hours. So if you haven't got enough of me, you can go and listen to that. And there's a video of it as well if you want to see my face. So, so this is how it is that, Chris, you're doing public appearances without your co-host. You're sidelining me. You're, you're, you're seeing like a career for yourself that doesn't include me. Why wasn't I invited? You Explain, get what's going on plenty here? of shout-outs. You get, I give you credit endlessly. And plus, you were busy on Walkabout that week. So I did us the promotional <laughs> duty of uh, recording. But it, it was really enjoyable. It was a, It's like more of a discussion than 
an interview um like you know the same way we do and stefan's like a really sharp guy so interesting thing and another crossover with the brazilian jiu-jitsu world so so check it out i'll i haven't listened to it yet but I'll, i will check it out you know i just can't get enough of your opinions <laughs> yeah. right. so, two hours matt two hours of gold uh, maybe i should forward it to pg783 <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, uh, uh, sorry, PG. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, um, sorry. We value the critical feedback. We value your feedback. We value your feedback. It was very valuable. Um, so, Matt, all that remains to be said is that you now should go and gravel at the feet of your muscle mass. <laughs> I will. Maybe between three and four. I think I've got a window. So, I'll pop it in then. That's all right. About now, I should do it. Okay, Matthew Smith, I will see you next time with God Sad. God Sad. <laughs> Can't wait. See you then. Bye. Bye. One thing that it has done is to enhance my uh, sense of appreciation for the, the beauty of life uh, and of the universe and the, the sheer joy of being alive. You had a healthy portion of that before this, but even you, it happens to. Oh, there's no question. No question. Every moment, every... Every inanimate object, uh, to say nothing of, of the exquisite complexity of, uh, of living beings. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you imagine missing it all and suddenly it's so much more precious.